Welcome to Documental, Mapping the American States of Mind. I'm your host and producer, Whitney Fishburne in Washington. My guest this time is author, lawyer, and classicist, Brian Murarescu. His book, The Immortality Key, The Secret History of the Religion with No Name, is a New York Times bestseller. With 15 years of scholarship and sleuthing across many specialties, ranging from archaeochemistry to linguistics to paleobotany to the antiquities, Murarescu has pieced together compelling evidence that the early Christian church was based on the use of of psychedelics in ceremonies derived straight from the Dionysian mysteries. This episode is provocative, it's important, and it's the fulcrum for a three-part documental series on the intersection of psychedelics and democracy. So welcome and let's get started. Welcome Brian Murrescu to Documental. I am thrilled to have you, frankly. Um, I want to congratulate you as the author of The Immortality Key, The Secret History of the Religion with No Name. This book blew my mind because first of all, it's fascinating to read and you you know Dan Brown has nothing on you <laughs> uh, and it's all true but also what I am really curious to find out is what on earth drove you to this nearly 15 year odyssey to essentially uh, you don't say this but we're going to explore this to essentially come at the heart of all of the status quo, not just the Catholic Church, not just Christianity, but everything our modern society is based on. How did you do this and why did you do this? <laughs> Good questions, neighbor. Um, so we should mention we're, we're probably only about 10 minutes away from each other at the moment, which is uh, is atypical for my, my past few months of, of podcasting. Uh, well, it's exciting is, for me. It's, it's great. So we'll do this in person before, before long. Um, I'd love to. I, I usually answer that question by by saying that I, I don't know this the, the the mysteries get inside your bones. Um, you know, I started learning Latin and Greek from the Jesuits when I was fourteen, and had no idea what I was getting myself into. I got this scholarship to attend this all boys school in Philadelphia, um, and was just trying to survive really. But uh, realized pretty quickly that for some reason Latin and Greek came easier to me than mathematics. I was always terrible at calculus. Uh, so I just, I stuck with it and it wound up being the reason I went to college. I also got a scholarship from Brown to study classics. And, you know, um, eight years later, um, it's just the most extraordinary, you know, uh, coincidence of history and science um, and linguistics and religion that, that had always stuck with me. And I wanted to be a priest or a classics professor, but wound up becoming a practicing attorney. And I could never just put this stuff behind me. So nights and weekends, it was me hunting these mysteries. Uh, it's the kind of thing you don't forget, even when you're dealing with clients and real life and paying taxes and raising children. So I, I tried to the best of my ability to go after the, the best kept secret in history. In your book, you describe how you as a lawyer are um, a little bored with the situation that you're in at the time. I don't know, maybe you are more excited about the law you practice now, but you describe how, I think it was 2007, 2008, you see an article in The Economist about psychedelics and suddenly you perk up because you realize, wait a minute, this is perhaps something to do with that original question of did the church use psychedelics at one point and, uh, and your interest in the pagan continuity hypothesis. <laughs> so, so I guess, you know, if this, if this is accurate, if I'm reporting it correctly from what I've read, then go from there. Um, I, I mean, I first come across this stuff in the 90s as a teenager, um, and then it goes on the back burner for many years because there just, there, there weren't a lot of classicists, linguists, historians, etc., who were researching, you know, drug use in antiquity. You just, you couldn't find much about it. There was one book 
called The Road to Eleusis that came out in 1978 um, by Gordon Wasson, Albert Hoffman, who famously synthesized LSD back in the 1930s, and Carl Ruck, who was this um, Harvard and Yale trained classicist at Boston University. Um, and there they are with this relatively controversial idea that the ancient Greeks were using psychedelics to find God in what was known as the Eleusinian Mysteries. Um, and so, you know, I read that book, I guess, in the late 90s and, and had to leave it at that because there just wasn't a lot of literature on this stuff. And out of nowhere, um, in the early experiments at Hopkins, um, when they were studying psilocybin, that active compound in magic mushrooms, all of a sudden, this hunt comes back on my radar because in the very first sentence of that article called The God Pill, which was in The Economist, it mentions Gordon Wasson. And I hadn't heard Gordon's name in many years um, and I'd forgotten all about him actually. And then it forced me to kind of rethink um, his original hypothesis, which in Gordon's case went back to the 1950s. But it, it was this idea that by doing drugs, you can actually have a very genuine mystical experience. This is what some of the early volunteers in these Hopkins trials were talking about. But, but more impressively, it was the fact that it was one and only dose, by the way, of psilocybin, which even then, in the early 2000s, was resulting in these kind of profound, lifelong changes in people, psychologically, emotionally, spiritually. And it just, it reminded me, the same way it reminded Gordon in the 1950s, of these mysteries of Eleusis, which were also a once in a lifetime experience, which also uh, contained some kind of potion that was consumed by initiates like Plato and Marcus Aurelius. And so circumstantially, like there was all this data kind of pointing to psychedelics as, as the common denominator in these, um, in these secrets and these ceremonies. And so I just, I, I went crazy. Um, <laughs> I started ordering all these books on, on drugs and psychedelics. I had never taken psychedelics at that point in my life. I still have not, but it, it seemed to me like there, there was a piece of scholarship and a genuine mystery there um, that I just, I couldn't put down. I should say too, as I have been during out throughout this series with all of my guests, I also am a psychedelic uh, knife. I've never used, I've actually never used drugs, which is crazy for some wow. people at this point in my life. But um, yeah, so I've, I've never used psychedelics either. Um, We'll get back to that question, though, because um, I wonder if the more each of us gets involved in the research of this and is um, and speaks to people who have done this, if our curiosity will respectively be piqued. <laughs> but, <laughs> in any event, going back to this idea that you were on the hunt, um, and it was within the context of the pagan continuity theory, I'm going to ask you to explain that because I think, really, if there are three pillars that um, that this whole um, hunt of yours is based on it's this pagan continuity theory and then the idea of the eucharist being the blood of christ and that he is the lamb of god what does that really mean and then the idea that we die before we die i think these are three really important components to understanding what you've actually done with your scholarship okay cool so so pagan continuity uh, it certainly predates me uh, the the idea goes back probably at least to the 19th century uh, with folks like fraser who were writing about this in the Golden Bough. But I mean, in, in its essence, it's the hypothesis that some of these you know, ancient pre-Christian pagan rituals, traditions, beliefs made their way into early Christianity. It's, it's as simple as that, that you know, at the time you're dealing with what classicists would call an ancient cultural internet. 
Um, and the idea being that some of these very Greek motifs is, is what I focus on. There are different pagan traditions you can look at and different parallels you can draw between them and Christianity. But I focus very heavily on the Greek for the obvious reason that the New Testament is written in ancient Greek. You know, Paul, who writes most of the books of the New Testament, is writing in Greek for Greek speaking audiences around the Mediterranean. And so, you know, ancient Greek is the kind of the sacred language of Christianity. It's really where the roots of Paleo-Christianity are. Um, and so it's not altogether inconceivable that some of those Greek traditions found a home in early Christianity. I mean, you know, folks like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. were writing about this theory in the mid 20th century. Um, he wrote a paper you can find online called The Influence of the Mystery Religions on Christianity. Um, and what Dr. King says is that, you know, at the very least, there was a, a natural and unconscious process where, where Christianity was certainly in contact with these older religions and uh, would have picked up, you know, certain motifs um, as the general trend of the time. Um, and so, you know, psychedelics are kind of <laughs> just a little corner of, of that theory. But, you know, once you start to tease out some of the similarities between a god like Dionysus, the Greek god of wine and ecstasy and, and spiritual madness, um, and Jesus. And there's lots of good scholarship on this, which is not mine. Um, I'm just, I'm reporting, you know, folks like, like Dennis McDonald, by the way, who a few years ago wrote a great book, a very scholarly book called The Dionysian Gospel, talking about how the Gospel of John very much incorporates some of this, you know, pagan vocabulary, imagery, um, even, even coded language, the way uh, Harvard's A.D. Nock uh, would refer to it, the idea of symbols and language that were known and that were passed around from initiate to initiate in the first, second, third centuries AD. I mean, so the idea has been out there for a while, but you know, psychedelics have always kind of been the third rail in this conversation. And there wasn't much hard scientific data to support um, these notions one way or the other. So that, that's how I spent most of the past decade was you know, talking to the botanists and chemists and archeologists and trying to figure out, is there any actual data for this? So the pagan continuity theory though is, I mean, is it general? It's general. What you're saying is it's generally accepted. The Vatican, who, who actually gets involved in helping you, or at least the librarians do, with the Vatican, <laughs> right. they're not actually challenging this. And and you do have some help from a um, a wonderfully interesting uh, Francis Tizo, Father Francis Tizo. I would love to meet him one day, actually. <laughs> um, but I mean. I guess for some, the pagan continuity theory is controversial, but um, as far as the scholarship of it goes, the Vatican acknowledges, you know, Jesus didn't just arise out of, into a vacuum out of nowhere. Um, it, it's, yeah, depending on who you're talking to at the Vatican, you might get different answers, <laughs> but um, I, I'm again, like scholars, theologians, um, historians have been writing about this for, for generations, um, you know, but, but even if you ignore all that and just look at the actual text of the New Testament itself. I mean, the Greek, the Greek does matter, you know, so uh, I'd like to point to, to Mark 4.11. Um, and and I, I pick out that verse because, you know, Jesus himself there is describing why he talks in parables, all these, all these stories that we know from the New Testament, you know, the prodigal son and the mustard seed, etc. When, when he's asked in Mark why he talks in parables, you know, why not speak plainly? Why not, why not just be very prosaic about it? Why, why all, the, all the allegory and the imagery? And, and Jesus, out of his mouth, uses the Greek. He says, this is a mustedion. It's a secret. And if you look at the, the Thayer's Greek-English lexicon, uh, they'll actually define that mustedion, which is where we get the word mystery. They define it as you know, religious secrets that are to be confided only to the initiated and not communicated by them to ordinary mortals. And I, I always quote that, that definition because it just goes to show that from the very beginning, Christianity is born with secrets. 
Um, and the idea is that not everything Jesus was talking about is, is laid bare in the Gospels or Paul's letters. Um, and that just like the ancient pagan traditions, which were very much secret, very much you know rituals of initiation, Christianity seems to have a certain level of secrecy you know, baked into its origins. And it's something we're not often talked about. Well, we're going to talk about it. <laughs> we're definitely going to come back to that. So the blood of Christ, the Lamb of God, this whole um, idea that when there is a, a Eucharist, it is a transubstantiation, um, transubstantiation, I can, well, if I can get all the syllables together, but that we're actually having, and, and as someone who was raised in the Catholic faith and then eventually became a member of the Episcopal faith, until just like you, I got to the point where it was 90 minutes of boredom. And, <laughs> And nothing at all new and nothing that I didn't already figure out from just the living of my life and being, I hope, a mature, spiritual individual. And it never made sense to me that there would be this blood of Christ, Lamb of God. Right. I mean, so this is the, this is a big issue. Um, and you're not, you're not the only one who doesn't get it. Uh, I, I quote a Pew poll in my book, which says something like 69% of American Catholics do not believe in transubstantiation, which... Um, I mean, that, that's an issue for one of the central doctrines of the Catholic Church, 1.2 billion people, you know, when, when close to 70% of people don't get it or think of it as a symbol or a metaphor. Well, you're not really drinking Christ's blood. You're drinking some kind of symbol of that blood. Um, that is not the teaching of the Catholic Church. And by the way, it's not what Jesus says in the Gospels. It's not a metaphor. Um, and, 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 and I think the, the invitation to drink his blood would not have been something that, that would have been alien or foreign to the people at the time. And this, again, is where the pagan continuity idea comes in. Like if you asked a classicist about drinking blood, they would have no problem pointing directly to Dionysus. And so, you know, I, I, I quote Walter Burkert, the great German classicist in my book. Um, he has a, a wonderful um, piece of literature called Homo Neckans, where he really gets into detail on this stuff. Um, but he talks about the blood of Dionysus. In fact, the wine of antiquity was referred to by different sources as the Haimavachiu, the blood of Dionysus, um, going back centuries before Jesus. And so to a classicist, the idea of drinking blood to drink the God is not a foreign thing. And so if it's not foreign to 20th century classicists, it certainly wasn't foreign to a first century recipient of the gospel. So when they hear the vocabulary of John, they would have been reminded of Dionysus and all these Greek traditions. And, and the very beginning of John's gospel, the, the wedding at Cana, for example, this whole water to wine miracle. Uh, again, that, that was a tradition that, that existed in the Greek world for centuries, the miraculous transformation of water to wine, including on the Epiphany Day in early January. It happened in Greece, um, just the way it's reported in the gospels, but it's only in John's gospel. So again, there's lots of different parallels here, but the that, that book, the Dionysian gospel, goes into great detail um, about the fact that, that John is presenting Jesus in very Dionysian clothing, very Greek clothing, and very pagan clothing. Um, and there's nothing more pagan, more archaic, or even more graphic than drinking that blood. Um, and so I always point to John 660, when uh, the, the people who are hearing this Eucharist that you're talking about, and this idea of transubstantiation for the very first time, they think it's gross. And, and it's, it's right there in the Greek. The reaction of the people who hear John's Eucharist say skleros, skleros, like this is difficult. This is harsh. This is really hard for us to accept. You're talking about cannibalism, right? Um, that was anathema in the Jewish world of Galilee 
at the time. You didn't drink human blood. Uh, so I know that the mass is born out of this Passover meal and Christ's passion. But if you really look at the language and what, and what Jesus is asking his followers to do, it is nothing less than cannibalism um, and literal blood drinking. Um, and again, that's something that would have been familiar to the pagan audience at the time. Okay, so then that brings us to the quote that you begin your book with, which I will read the English because I do not know how to correctly pronounce the Greek, but essentially um, to die before we die. And that was only possible with the use of the psychedelics. So was it that the psychedelics in a brew of some kind, which you can um, explain to us was generally it was a wine that was spiked with various herbs that were um, psychoactive. Uh, was that the actual blood or was there actual blood? Because you also talk about goats and spilling the blood <laughs> and eating the meat and, and so forth. So what is the connection between the blood and the, and the Lamb of God sacrifice and this idea that we die before we die? Right. So th that, that's, it's a big issue. Um, and again, j just to close the loop on John, I mean, you, you've been referencing the Lamb of God. And I think that's probably a familiar phrase to, to most Catholics and, may, and maybe most Christians. Um, but that image only occurs in John's gospel, by the way, just like the wedding at Cana, just like this graphic vocabulary um, I mentioned about John's Eucharist. Um, I mean, so, but, but all, all that aside, again, it's referencing um, some of these ancient pagan traditions and these sacraments. Um, again, the, the invitation to drink blood um, was not unique to Jesus. It goes back to Dionysus and to gods before him for centuries. And what is the whole point of these mysteries? Um, whether it's the mysteries at Eleusis that we talked about briefly, or these mysteries of Dionysus, the whole point is death and rebirth. If I had to define what these mysteries are, these initiation rites and, the, and these ceremonies, it's, it's dying before you die. And, and it's going through this process um, of a mini death, like a foreshadowing of your own death to be reborn into a new identity. By the way, language that also occurs in John's gospel, um, that you know, once you die, you can see the kingdom of heaven. Um, and so the, the point in these ancient rituals, including the consumption of whether it was like, you know, a spiked beer in the Eleusis mysteries or some kind of spiked wine in the Dionysian mysteries, the whole point is to lose yourself, you know, to lose the self, to find the self, to, to achieve communion with the God, in this case, Dionysus, the master of life, or to achieve communion even with the fellow worshipers, or to achieve communion with the life of the earth itself. Again, the like gold standard classicists will talk about this. Um, E.R. Dodds, for example, talks a lot about this. The whole point of these sacraments, uh, wine in this case, is to lose yourself in ecstasy with, with the divine. And so when, when the early Christian audiences would have heard this, they would have associated uh, the Christian wine with this concept of apotheosis, like drinking the God to become the God, drinking that blood to unite your blood, your body, your being with, with divinity. I mean, the, the whole point is nothing less than one of these beatific visions, you know, where you become quite godlike yourself. This, this is what apotheosis is. Um, or the idea of enthusiasm, that you're being filled with the spirit of the God, which is what it literally means in Greek. Um, and so the only question is, what kind of wine was this? You know, so we can draw all these parallels. We can talk about pagan continuity. I think your real question is like, <laughs> are there psychedelics or not? Um, and, you know, I'm not claiming that psychedelics were involved in every single ancient mystery, rite Or religion or ritual, or even in early Christianity. I'm saying that uh, it's possible that some of these spiked beverages and some of these sacraments um, could have resulted in consciousness 
altering experiences that today we would call psychedelic that seem to be studied, you know, in the clinical setting. And, and I think there's some evidence to suggest that they did form a part of, of the ancient world. And I'll just, I'll just close by saying, you know, um, you can read the whole New Testament in Greek and you'll never find the word for alcohol. You won't find one reference to alcoholic wine. Wine was prized in antiquity, not because of its alcoholic content. There's no word in Greek for alcohol. So the wine at the time was prized for its intoxicating properties, which could have come from the alcohol, although there's no word for it, but may have come from some of these very powerful plants, herbs, mushrooms, etc., that we know there were recipes for in the first century AD. So, so mm -hmm. that's kind of the ground on which this investigation rests. Okay, so you're talking that it wasn't alcohol, it was pharmaco, and the Greek word for that was pharmaco. Um, but I just want to then reiterate, so you, you're talking about, so if you die before you die, I'm reading the quote now, if you die before you die, you won't die when you die, meaning that whatever was happening, it was this idea that now in modern day, participants in the psychedelic studies that are being, you know, that have been going on here and, and also in Europe, um, those experiences that many of the participants report are like these beatific visions where they go and they they experience many different ways that they describe it but essentially the face of god or being in the lap of god or knowing that there is something beyond here and so it's there's a parallel i'm just making sure that we're you know we're that's what you mean by if you die before you die you won't die when you die so you your fear of the existential fear that we might have as humans can be allayed by having this psychedelic or beatific experience. Yeah, and, and you know, strangely enough, this, this is what the psychopharmacologists at Hopkins are talking about, or NYU, or the clinical psychologists. I mean, the, they're, I, think, I think they were just as surprised as, as you and me to, to, to realize that, that people are having genuine mystical experiences. Um, under the influence of psilocybin. Um, and if you ask Roland Griffiths at Hopkins, for example, not, not too far from where we're sitting right now, um, I, I included my book, he told me that the, the figure over the past 20 years is about 75%, that 75% of the volunteers who go in and experience, again, one and only dose of psilocybin, just one dose, will wind up reporting it as one of the most personally meaningful experiences of their entire lives, if not the most meaningful experience which is crazy because again, it's the same kind of language. It's the same testimony that we hear about these mystery rites of Eleusis. Um, and, you know, we don't have stats and figures about early Christianity, but we need to remember that, you know, Christianity um, didn't conquer the world in a day, but it went from being uh, this illegal cult to the biggest religion in the world, the official religion of Rome in only a couple hundred years. Now, we, we can't credit psychedelics with that, but we can credit, I think, uh, visionary experiences. Um, we can credit mystical experiences. Whatever was happening in these early Eucharistic rites clearly was um, something very meaningful for people um, in, those, in those early centuries. And so you take all this data together and what you wind up with are, the, again, these death and rebirth experiences um, that seem to carry their way all the way from antiquity into Christianity. The, the, that Greek phrase that you're quoting, by the way, that comes from a, a monastery. It's actually St. Paul's monastery at Mount Athos in Greece, one of the holiest sites in, in Greek Orthodoxy. Um, in Greek, it goes like this, an pethanis, prin pethanis, dentha pethanis, otan pethanis. If you die before you die, you won't die when you die. Now, again, that's not talking about psychedelics, but it's talking about this death and rebirth cycle that clearly 
makes its way into Christianity. So the only question is, how do you die before you die? There's lots of ways to do it. Psychedelics seem to be pretty fast acting and potent. The fact that um, three quarters of the people who are in these studies are finding themselves to have the most uh, transformative experience of their lives, not surprising me, is tied into the idea that um, as you you don't really spell it out 100%, but you keep alluding to it in your book. So I'm going to spell it out and you tell me if I'm getting this wrong. Basically, what the church has done is taken whatever was happening, as you you say, you know, these people were having these visions, they were having these experiences at the beginning of uh, the, um, the Christian church. But what the church did, and you talk about the difference between mystics and bureaucrats or mystics and hierarchies is the church has essentially inserted itself as the mediator and the um, the interpreter of what it means to be human. And I actually, I know that's a really powerful indictment, but I think you lay out a really good case for that having happened because it essentially destroyed the mysteries and it made it illegal. They didn't allow it anymore. You weren't, it became illegal to have these experiences just like it is now. And then what it did by taking that away from people was it took away the power that people had to have that direct communion with the all, with the source, and then became the foundation for a hierarchy. And then the hierarchy became the status quo. And as you so elegantly point out by bringing in the words of this Roman initiate into the Dionysian mysteries, and I, I think I say his name correctly, um, Praetextatus or Praetextatus, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He's brilliant, and I'm so glad that you quoted him. I'd never heard of him before, but he basically lays out where we are today with our incredibly reductionist, materialistic view of things made possible only by a hierarchy, where, as you also point out, we have a very small, if any, just negligible respect for the feminine. And what the church did was lay the lay the foundation for them being in control and then there being supremacy of some kind and the equality that one could get, the democratic approach to being uh, able to initiate yourself into the mysteries of the all was stripped away. And what Praetextata said was basically, I interpreted what he was saying is the church isn't the mediator. The Roman Senate isn't the mediator between humans and God. Mother nature is, and without a respect for mother nature, then the world will perish. And I mean, I guess I could read that. It's on page 73, if anybody does have a copy of the hardback version. He says, um, uh, but because it's only possible when the untamed lives in harmony with the domesticated. So basically, taking control of the uh, agriculture and of um, any of these psychedelic properties, making them... Um, illegal to use. It takes away the ability to balance the wild and the modern, which we need in order to keep everything in the world in balance. Because Praetextata said, you strip this away from humans and the world will, will end. I mean, that's basically what he said, correct? So that's why I say your book is, I mean, you're like Galileo. I, I really mean it. <laughs> I'm very serious. I know, I know you don't, you don't see yourself that way. I can tell, but to me, this is this is as shocking and disruptive a work as Galileo. So go ahead. <laughs> That's hard to resist. There's a lot there, Whitney. There's there's a lot there. Uh, no, I don't think I'm Galileo. Um, 
That's but, okay. I, I will maintain the Galileo fan club. You go right ahead and be you. But you really have struck at the heart of the status quo. Well, th thank you. Um, it's, I mean, it's, it's going to sound weird that this is, this is what the classics teach. I mean, I've, I've gone out of my way to, to talk about like Walter Burkert and, and all these scholars, um, you know, for whom a lot of this material is very, very familiar. Um, and, and as I went down the classical rabbit hole here, it just, you know, the, the similarities between the old pagan world and the, and the new Christian world and, and, you know, what the world really looked like in the first century and second century, it just, it, it sticks with you. And, you know, even in academia, the, the classicists and the theologians aren't often talking to one another. Um, you know, so, I mean, if there's a paradigm shift here, it, it's, it's really just, you know, getting these, these different counterparties to, to interact. You know, the classicists typically focus only on the pagan world, right? And, and why not, given everything that, that Athens produced? And the theologians and the religious folk tend to focus on the Bible, the New Testament, and the spiritual life. I mean, I guess the one thing my book does is, is, is try and put those, the, those two seemingly conflicting um, ideologies together, right? Why, why couldn't a classicist weigh in on religion? Why, I mean, and this is, you know, this is what Karl Ruck has done in his scholarship. So I'm really just following up on that scholarship. Once you approach the Bible or religion or the history of Christianity, like a classicist, it starts to read a little bit differently. Um, and, you know, so maybe these, these ancient Greeks from whom we inherited all these great things like democracy and the arts and the sciences and literature and philosophy. Um, you know, maybe they, <laughs> maybe they figured something out about life. Maybe they weren't complete idiots. Maybe they didn't believe there were 12 gods on Mount Olympus. Maybe they didn't believe in these children's stories that were taught in our mythology classes. And maybe they had a keen insight into the meaning of life. And maybe that was passed to the earliest Christians who, you know, very well came up with other ideas. Um, that, that made life livable for them. Uh, but the whole idea is, you know, this is a melting pot. I call it the ancient cultural internet of the time. And there's just, it, it's ripe with mystery. Um, and so if, if the status quo uh, needs, needs a reckoning, it's, it, it's, only, it's only a return really to, to what I think was the religious experience in those early centuries. So, you know, whether you're a person of faith or not at all, I think, you know, it's what happened there is some of the most transformative moments in the history of Western civilization. And, and I think it deserves a really hard look, um, not just from academia, but from all of us in conversations like this, what was happening in those early centuries? Um, and I, I guess that's where I come down. I'm not sure I answered your question. <laughs> well, that's okay. I'll pick it up again, but I'm just going to remind you that Galileo did base his theories on what went before and that was Copernicus. But, you know, Karl Ruck suffered greatly because he did put these things forth. And uh, hopefully it doesn't seem to me that anybody's coming after you to burn you at the stake. But I do think that Galileo is, is it's not too, um, it's not too grand a, a comparison. It really isn't. But I, I'm going to get back to what Praetext taught us, it said, and also what you just said, which is, you know, so often we think of the Greek myths as silly. Now, as somebody who has spent most of her adult life somehow involved in mental health, you know, mm. psychiatry as a journal editor for psychiatry or reporting on psychiatry or somehow hanging around, you know, psychiatrists. Um, I never thought the Greeks were silly. I thought that what they were putting forth were really helpful 
psychological parables with all of the uh, things that the, all the mischief that the gods were getting into. There was just like you were talking about in, you know, with Jesus and and the gospels and the synoptic gospels anyway. Look, these are parables because if you really spend time with them and you apply them to your life, you'll understand them. But you can't just get the, you know, it's not a turnkey operation here. But you make a point in your book about the fact that you know, the founders of democracy and essentially the progenitors of today's science that, you know, the scientific method going back to Aristotelian physics, you know, the processes that we pretty much base all of our chemistry and, and everything on today. It started with the Greeks. It started in the Hellenic era, era and that area of the world. So why would the founders then of science and of democracy be so silly as to have these silly these these silly parables, these silly, you know, mischief mm. soap operas. And I think it's a great question. And you essentially go ahead and you answer it. It's because they had access to the mysteries. And so many of the people that we venerate, such as Plato and Socrates and all of these others, they were using the pharmaco. They were using these herbs, these potions that you talk about as a way to go beyond. Now, as far as democracy is concerned, though, it's not like it was all rosy for everybody in the Greek times. There was That's definitely right. there was suppression, there was slavery, there were all kinds of crappy things happening. But you had you did have the initiates. They did go beyond. Uh, I can't remember if you actually state this or if I in- inferred this, but that Plato was also an initiate of these mysteries, and that it's probable that he got his idea of the archetypes from having one of these mystical psychedelic type of experiences. Certainly made me wonder about Jung because he knew Hoffman as well, but uh, the chemist you, you referenced who developed LSD. Um, you know, so I think this is a really important point though, is I'm gonna bring it to today. We are at a fundamental point of, of crisis in our democracy. And we have to ask ourselves, are we gonna go with fanatical, bonkers, non-scientific approaches to governance as we keep talking about because those people are out there and they're in the news. Or are we going to go on hardcore science is, is God, science is it, we don't need the rest of this nonsense, air quotes, nonsense. Or are we going to be like the Greeks who found a democracy and say, hey, wait a minute, you know what, there's a bridge. There's a bridge between the two. And if we're a mature enough citizenship, uh, citizenry, we'll figure that out. And we'll understand that we need both. We need the silly God mysteries because, in fact, they're not silly. They're teaching us. And we need the science and we need these these ways of democratization of things. Now, getting to John, the Gospel of John, John was really the first one to say, "Okay, we're going to short circuit this. You had to be an initiate. You had to spend a lot of time before they allowed you to have a sip of this potion. You had to maybe be wealthy. You had to have the credentials. And John, the Gospel of John, if I'm reading you correctly, was a way and, and also you, you reference your, uh, the other classicists who've studied this, but what you put forth in your book is John was saying, you know what, there is a democratic way to know the all and the source and to be able to find God in your own chest, feeling the sun rise there, not having it mediated or dictated to you. And it's through these secret, you know, wink, wink, Dionysian experiences of Jesus. So what we're talking about when we talk about psychedelics and psychedelic experiences is, in my opinion, striking down the hierarchy and returning to understanding what democracy is really all about. And that is why I think your book is a lightning rod. Hmm. 
<laughs> Thank you. Um, <clears throat> I mean, it, beg it begs uh, a big question of, uh, you know, maybe the absence of these initiations or, or rites of passage is, is kind of a fatal flaw in our democracy, which has become toxic, right? And a nation divided. Um, not to say that the, the Greeks' um, democracy was perfect, as you point out. It was, <clears throat> it was pretty horrible being a woman in antiquity. Um, and there were lots of flaws in the system, but, but they maintain these rites of passage that we've been referring to as the mysteries, the, these death and rebirth experiences. Um, I'll finally answer your question about Pratextatus. He's one of these initiates um, and uh, his experience is recorded by a Greek historian named Zosimus in the fourth century. But, you know, getting back to just what the things that are obvious to classicists for some reason are glossed over for the rest of us, but what Praetextatus says in the fourth century, the way it's been recorded, as the mysteries are about to be obliterated, essentially, under the increasingly Christianized Roman Empire, um, as the mysteries are about to go away at Eleusis, Praetextatus is recorded saying, you know, to kill these mysteries is to kill us, that there was something about the mysteries of Eleusis that was bound up with, you know, human existence, not, not just Greek civilization, but the sustainability of the human species itself. Um, and that in the absence of the mysteries, he says in Greek, life would become abiotos, like unlivable, um, non-biological, that there'd be, there'd be no game for us. Um, again, that's, that's a very big statement. And I don't know why we don't talk about that more often, but- what, you Well, know, let me interrupt you to remind you, that's where we are right now. We are almost at the point where we are abiotos. How do you pronounce it in Greek? Abiotos. Abiothos, we are at an extinction rate of 60% of the species on the planet because we have taken this approach that is not balanced, that is not wild meets modern and always in balance. Instead, we have taken the hierarchical, let's go ahead and eliminate the bridge that is the mystery. And we are now at the point where he was a prophet. He became a prophet by essentially saying, you destroyed this mystery, you will destroy life on earth. And abiothos to me also means freedom. I don't know if there's an actual translation that it's freedom, but if you can't live, you can't be free. Hmm. Uh, I mean, th th this is the way, that, again, that, that classicists interpret that, that very strange phrase. I, in, in the book, I, re I reference Karl Kerenyi, one of these, these, these German writing classicists in uh, Die Mysterien von Heloisis in the early 1960s. He's writing about this, and he doesn't know what it means either. Um, he doesn't know why Praetextatus is saying all this and why it's been recorded. Um, and, and, you know, his only conclusion is that the, the, the language there is so weird um, that it has to mean something. And he, he says that there's no parallel in earlier literature for what Praetextatus is saying, and that um, it springs from the conflict between Greek religion and Christianity. You could say, you know, pagan mystery experiences and the Christianity that was, that was becoming, uh, you know, a state-controlled apparatus in the fourth century. And so this, this tension between the mystics and the bureaucrats that I talk about throughout the book, um, it was there and it, was, it, it reached its climax, its peak in the fourth century. And we have testimony saying that, you know, the, the, the Christianized Roman empire is about to destroy something that kept life alive. And it's weird that e even Albert Hoffman himself, the, the father of LSD, he talks about this concept of our alienation from nature you know, um, being the, the, the root cause for ecological devastation, climate change, et cetera, and this sense of connection and being one, um, both with the planet, with each other, it seems to have been there 
in antiquity. Um, Eleusis seems to be a small piece of that. The mysteries of Dionysus seem to be a small piece of what it means to be kind to one another, to have, you know, this sense of like, group consciousness. Mm. Um, and for some reason that, that was lost. Wow. Okay. Well, that's amazing because I've already recorded an interview with Achuta Bhava Das who has spent, uh, I can't remember, I don't want to misquote the number of times, but let's say over a dozen uh, trips to the Amazon rainforest to partake in ayahuasca ceremonies. So we talked at length about ayahuasca and I put forth my theory that we can't have we can't evolve and we can't have a democracy without what you just said, which is kindness. And, and he and I have a great conversation about um, the words in, in antiquity for kindness actually equal health, that they're inseparable. Kindness and health are inseparable. But this idea that um, the classicists and others who are now coming together, and this is again why I think your, your scholarship is so remarkable, is you connected the dots from chemistry to linguistics to the classics to the Vatican. And the fact that you had the kind of education that you had made that possible. And I want to also talk about the fact that we don't give that kind of education to our citizen citizenry anymore is uh, maybe um, you know a byproduct of the hierarchy. But getting back to what you were just saying about the confusion amongst classicists, what the heck was Praetextatus talking about? Well, again, you know, I have to wonder if he was maybe he had a vision. You know, maybe in in, in one of his psychedelic moments, he was shown this idea that you get rid of this mystery and the world will in fact be destroyed because now here's my own crazy woo woo theory and i didn't have it until i read your book but i suddenly had it and i wasn't on drugs at the time let me tell you i just thought you know what what if what if jesus was a messenger to humanity hey watch out the hierarchy's coming for you and you had better learn to be in balance with mother nature, you had better learn to figure out how to get to the mystery yourself because they're coming for you. I don't know what, and I have no idea what really propels the idea that there has to be a hierarchy. But something else that Chudababa and I discuss is obviously hierarchy is necessary. You can't build anything. You must have structure. Hierarchy is necessary, but it shouldn't be the end game. And it became the end game. And Pretextatus warned us of that end game and what I heard when in, when I read what you quoted of him is I heard, you know, again, the church is not supposed to be the mediator between above and below. Mother nature is supposed to be the mediator. And the, the plants themselves are what we enter into relationship with, not the church. That the plants have a consciousness and a desire and a, and a, and a fate, perhaps, or a purpose to help carry us one to the other. I mean, we can't live, we can't be sustained without eating plants. You know, meat is one thing, but you definitely have to eat plants or you cannot live. So plants have an, an intrinsic relationship to our ability to be human and in, in our humanity and having our needs met, such as hunger, then having the time to contemplate God. If we don't have plants, we don't have time to sit around and worry about God because we're going to die. So I'm thinking Praetextatus had a vision perhaps and was saying, look, the plant kingdom, it's a kingdom and we need to have dominion with it, not domination over. And it just, I don't know, I can't substantiate, you know, substantiate my theory. But then I started thinking maybe Jesus was saying, yo, listen up, you guys, you're about to be under attack. So listen carefully. And I'm going to tell you in a little bunch of secrets what I'm trying to tell you and pay attention. And then, you know, everything's going to be cool. But uh, somehow the church 
took it and went in a different direction. And here we are today with 60% of our species extinct, a hierarchy that favors white men and the world on the brink of climate disaster. Mm -hmm. And this is, again, I go back to your book and I think, well, thank you very much for connecting all the dots and giving us an opportunity to say, well, we'd better start learning our classics. We'd better start learning how to take better care of our democracy. We'd better start understanding. You can't have one or the other. It can't be hierarchy and materialism and reductionism or wackadoodle theories about what God is actually telling us. You know, and that's a whole other conversation as we're going to get to this in a minute, you know, are psychedelics actually appropriate for the entire population? And I know that we have science that can tell us who it's contraindicated, contraindicated for. But I have actually thought, wouldn't it be interesting to microdose every single person on Capitol Hill right now? And I'm dead serious. Like, what <laughs> would happen? Who would go completely off the deep end and lose their mind? As has been documented, there are plenty of times where people who have personality disorders uh, interact with a psychotropic drug and don't ever come back from that place. They have a psychotic break and they don't ever come back to, you know, a baseline. Or who would have that microdose experience and suddenly go, boy, we are really up to our armpits and a bunch of garbage. What are we doing? This is stupid. We're not going to do this anymore. It'd be really interesting to find out who would who would suddenly become a mature spiritual adult who was also one of our elected leaders because there are precious few of those now. There's a lot there, Whitney. Um, I'll say, but I can act. I think I can, I can actually at least partially address that by looking into antiquity. I mean, this, when when you start to to look at the literature of psychedelics and that figure about seventy five percent, you know, having one of the most meaningful experiences of their lives under controlled conditions, obviously, people who've been prepared, um, you know, guide it, um, uh, evaluate it beforehand, you know, help. Um, the experiences helped integrate it afterwards. Um, this is what the the rituals were doing. And again, psychedelic or otherwise, right? That this is what the ancient uh, rituals, if they show anything, they show, um, you know, a great container for these otherworldly experiences. Um, and so when, when you ask today, like, I mean, clearly these things are meaningful. Why don't we just spike the water system? Why don't we microdose everybody? Why don't we just democratize this as far and wide as possible? I mean, it, it's, you know, there's, there's like a formula there that we haven't quite figured out yet because... Um, psychedelics are certainly not for everybody. Visionary experience isn't for everybody. Even mystical experience, you know, this conversation <laughs> even isn't for everybody. Um, and this is this is what the mysteries we're trying to get at. Um, and I think Jesus does play into this story. There's a way to read the Jesus story as a preservation of these mysteries, not an obliteration. And so just, just very quickly, we talked about a few different systems, but Eleusis I think it's important to point out was administered by the Greek state for many centuries. Um, and so all the secrecy and all the pageantry, um, it was bound up in these hereditary families and these priestesses, and it was continued into the Roman world, right? Marcus Aurelius rebuilds the temple at Eleusis um, when it's almost destroyed by the barbarians. Uh, so it wasn't just the Greeks, it was the Romans, right? Cicero, Marcus Aurelius, etc. They kept it alive. It was seen as something that was like orderly. Um, it was easy to contain and it was very structured. Now the mysteries of Dionysus are very, very different. They're, they're escaping the temple. So already you see this tension between, you know, does the mystery belong in this curated um, you know, pageant that survived for a couple millennia, or does it spill out into the forests and the mountains and the outdoor churches? Um, there was a big tension there. In 186 BC, the Roman Senate cracks down 
on the mysteries of Dionysus in Italy, where we think something like 6,000 people were exterminated. The Roman Senate did not want young, impressionable men escaping to the forest to be initiated into these ceremonies by essentially women, right? And then you see the same tension with Jesus. There's a way to read Jesus where um, he's essentially saying, you know, the, the democratization of the sacrament is one thing. Whatever Dionysus was doing, um, you know, is one thing. Here's, here's what Christianity is going to do. It's going to domesticate, not just democratize, but domesticate that sacrament. To celebrate the mysteries in your dining room um, could have exposed you to the penalty of death in ancient Greece. It's important to remember. Um, it was only yeah. in, the, in the temple. And so here comes Jesus, not only democratizing, not only making this available to, to women um, who play a huge role in the birth of Christianity, but it's also inviting the Eucharist, inviting the sacrament into the dining room. Because before there were churches and before there were basilicas in the fourth century, Christianity was an illegal cult that was practiced in private dining rooms and underground catacombs and subterranean chambers. That was Christianity for 300 years. Um, and so if there were secrets and if there were drugs involved, there's a way to read the gospel in which Jesus is inviting those ceremonies into the privacy of your kitchen. So this idea that Jesus was the first heretic essentially, and then he was bringing, um, he was bringing the opportunity to die before we die into our living rooms. That was what got me thinking that Jesus might've actually been the messenger. And um, you, you know, you point out in your book pretty early on that one of the key questions that we as a society might want to consider is, are we Greek or are we Christian? You know, which is our actual heritage? And, um, you know, you would maybe before reading your book, I would have said, well, obviously we're both. But now thinking about it, I'm wondering, are we actually both or is our true foundation Greek? Because the Greeks that we refer to in our conversation here, where they were uh, the ones who came up with science, but also these mysteries, as well as these these parables and these myths, they had the whole package. They had, they were operating from all three of those, uh, those rails, and then they were the ones who created democracy. Who knows what would have happened to the feminine, and you were referring to how uh, the women were the ones who were the, the administrators of the sacrament of this uh, Dionysian mystery, and before that, the Eleusian ones. Um, and notice that the church said no way to the women. And it all, it all comes back to control. And the church, as we know it today, and, you know, you end your book by basically saying, I still go to church. I still uh, believe in, in Jesus. And I'm a Catholic and not only a Catholic, but a Jesuit. And one day I might actually get together with Karl Ruck and have a sip of this psychedelic brew and I'll invite Pope Francis to come join us. And I thought, well, that sounds fun. However, that might be a little bit too glib for the fact that you've just essentially spelled out all the ways in which the church has been predicated on a lie mm. or predicated on the control of people that it then turns around and says it's going to help save. But what is the church's role really when it comes to what has happened on the planet? Mm. And, and uh, so, and guess what? I think America is actually the place where if we turn this around, as human beings, it's going to happen here. I fiercely 
fiercely believe in our constitution as a metaphysical document. Th these are the kinds of questions that I think you actually are spawning with your with your scholarship and with your incredible sleuthing that you put all of these things together. You know, what do you think have been the implications of your work? Um, I, th I think the implications are, again, just trying to figure out where we come from. And so you, you, you pose the question, are we Greek or are we Christian? We still haven't resolved what that means. Um, yeah, if, if you look to, to the ancient Greeks, maybe they had everything. The same people who created all this stuff and democracy, they also seem to have had a very advanced sense of spirituality um, and a religion that, that, that meant something to them, um, a religion that guaranteed the afterlife. Um, this is why I focus so much on the classics, because it, it begs the question, what is the true version of Christianity? I mean, I, I, don't, I don't think that Greek influence was lost in the first and second centuries. And so um, at the end of my book, I say that I still consider myself a Christian because the Christianity that I found through researching and writing this book was a very Greek Christianity, a very philosophical Christianity, a Christianity dedicated to mysticism and contemplation and service and love. Um, and, and, and I think, you know, you would have found people in the first and second centuries who had a hard time distinguishing their, their Greek education from, from their Christian worship. Um, you know, and I, I spent a lot of time looking at frescoes from the, the third century where you can see this playing out in real time, this, this, this intercultural encounter between paganism and Christianity with the, the Neoplatonists or the Neopythagoreans. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't think that Christianity stands for the proposition that, that we need mediators. I mean, I, I know the church certainly developed along those lines, um, but there's, there's, a, there's always been a discussion in Christianity, which is why there's so many denominations, over like 30,000 denominations. You know, the, the Protestants can't agree with the Catholics, who can't agree with the Orthodox, who can't agree with the Evangelicals. We're all trying to figure out, like, who was this Jesus? What was the point of this religion? How should it be expressed? Um, and the Christianity that I was taught from the Jesuits and others is, is, was always kind of this mystical Christianity, uh, you know, a Christianity that, that exists almost on the periphery. Um, and I think even within the, the Catholic Church, uh, you know, you, you can find uh, countercultural voices in the religious orders. You know, among the Franciscans and Dominicans, and um, well, I'm, I'm, yeah. one of them is your friend and and uh, and author, Father Francis Tizo. Uh, he, you know, just to summarize what he he says, he says we're all inherently capable of our own moment of transfiguration. That Jesus taught that the promise is our own power, not in worshiping Him. And and you also say. Um, this is on page 91, the hardback version. The purpose of accepting authority is to learn to outgrow it. So, you know, this, this is reiterating and underscoring what you've just now been saying about the, the point of religion is actually a mystical one. Um, or the, the point of so many different denominations is trying to get its arms around the mystical. While at the same time, going back to that idea of hierarchy and structure, trying to keep it in place. And my own theory, this is something I've written a lot about, but I think it comes into play here, is that we, we must have structure at some point. And this is why right. the Constitution, when, when it is applied by spiritually, and I mean that word, spiritually mature adults, when the Constitution is applied that way, it is transcendent because it gives us the, the, the armature, it gives us that kind of structure that we need in order to, to create 
the cosmos out of the chaos using your own words and and you're describing the difference between chaos and cosmos in the for the greeks gives us a scaffolding out of the chaos into something we've never been able to access before but then when you get there if you've got this sclerotic kind of ossification of the structure around you which would be some of the people in government saying that's the bureaucracy it's too it's too uh, Im imposing it's overpowering it's what's become sclerotic it's the it's what's holding us back from freedom that could be anything it's not government i say it today as the corporations or as the church but basically what I'm saying is you need both. You need structure, you need freedom, but what you actually have to have is an understanding that whatever structure you build around yourself so that you can make some sense of the chaos will eventually have to be dismantled. Otherwise it becomes your prison. So freedom ultimately can become a prison, a prison if you don't allow freedom to stay free. And that is why I think that the quote from your book, the purpose of accepting authority is to learn to outgrow it, is extremely prophetic and it's where we are now and we don't even seem to understand it because rather than find the middle we go to the sides and we start screaming and throwing rocks at each other from this science side or soul side except that the soul side to me seems as soulless and psychotic in its frenzy as as immature adults the people i really don't think could handle something like psychedelics but that's where we started. So that's where I want to go back to is, is psychedelics, because um, this idea of mediation, you know, one of the things I addressed with um, Dr. Scott Aronson, who will be running the phase two clinical studies at uh, Shepherd Pratt up the road here in uh, Baltimore County, he's now being backed by Compass Pathways, which has the, um, they have a patent out on their own version of psilocybin. It's called COMP360. Um, I'll just state for the record, I didn't really say this in my interview with Dr. Aronson, but I have a lot of faith in Dr. Aronson is always doing the right thing. I think he's like most of the psychiatrists I know, frankly, they really want to help. They do good work and they're not interested necessarily in um, indulging their own egos. But what I am worried about is turning pharma, pharmaceutical companies into the next mediator. I don't really wanna make, let's say that I decide I wanna um, partake in these um, studies or you, you talk at the end of your book about how these studies actually make it possible to think that we could scale people having psychedelic experiences in a safe environment. Um, and I thought, okay, but somebody has to manage that. Mm -hmm. and if we're going to have psycho, um, psychedelics or psychotropics being completely run by the pharmaceutical industry, that essentially makes them in charge of my psychedelic experience or my die before I die so that I don't die when I die moment. And I'm not willing to hand over that power to the pharmaceutical company. So mm. how do we address that? Where do we, do, where do we go with that kind of dilemma that we set up for ourselves? Is your micro church idea the, the solution? <laughs> That's interesting. Uh, you see, we're still wrestling with access to these mysteries, aren't we? Um, you know, for 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 people who are who are suffering with with genuine clinical conditions, depression, anxiety, PTSD, end of life distress. You know, the pharmaceutical model is the kind of model that can that can distribute these medicines if they're being treated as medicines after FDA approval, and and provide relief for people. Now. 
that brings up a, an intrinsic dilemma. Are we talking about you know FDA-approved medication here with psychedelics, or are we talking about sacraments, or are we talking about you know something that is recreationally consumed, microdose every now and again? Um, you see the same debate with cannabis, by the way. I mean, in, in many of the ballot initiatives, there's there's always been the preservation of home grow. I think actually in D.C., isn't it? I think you can have a few plants now legally. You can grow cannabis in your garden or your backyard. Yeah, um, it's definitely it's well, I think that the wording is that clever way where it's it's not a prosecutable offense or. Right. You know, um, and, but you can the, get and, away with it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think psychedelics will probably be the same. There will be clearly the pharmaceutical industry um, is, is all in. And, and that, that will serve a certain segment of the population. Um, I, I think, you know, just like in the Native American church with peyote or different Brazilian spawn churches with ayahuasca that are legal already here in the US because of the first amendment, I think you'll probably see other first amendment challenges um, to incorporating these sacraments either in existing traditions like Christianity or Judaism, um, or, or maybe some hybrids or some new religions, non-denominational, non-indigenous religions. Um, you know, we've, I, I think you almost answered your own question about, about the constitution um, and it, the, the prophetic nature of the constitution. It's, um, it's, it, it's a malleable document and it's all in there, you know, along with free speech and free press and the right to assembly, the freedom of religion comes first in the first amendment, you know? So Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. Um, you know, we, we often make the mistake that Christianity is somehow synonymous with religion in this country. Um, the, the founders did not, did not believe that. Um, they didn't write that into the Constitution. And so they're, you know, for, wearing my lawyer hat, there's lots of very compelling arguments one can make about the sincere religious exercise that would include psychedelics in you know, safe, efficacious settings that, that produce, you know, genuine religious experiences. It hasn't been adjudicated at the Supreme Court yet. We have peyote and ayahuasca. Um, but th things like psilocybin and other psychedelics just haven't been adjudicated. So you're either going to see some kind of case go to the Supreme Court, or you might see RIFRA, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, amended in the coming years to, to begin contemplating all this. Well, I don't want to turn this into an overtly political conversation, but I do think it would be remiss of me to not point out that right now there is a question as to whether or not the Supreme Court is impartial. Um, I am not going to comment one way or the other, but these are the kinds of concerns that I have when we talk about handing over um, this sort of access to the beyond to powers that may or may not feel it has any or they have any responsibility to me as a citizen. Um, I'll be very direct with an example of this, though. So if the FDA has to be the one that um, ultimately, and it does actually, has to, it has to, working with Congress, it would have to remove psychedelics from being on Schedule One mm -hmm. and, and therefore, you know, finding a way to make them legal, as you point out. But, you know, the FDA, and I covered a lot of this, and now lots of others have covered, and, and, you know, massive amounts of excellent investigative reporting have shown that the FDA really blew it when it came to interacting with the opioid, opioid crises, and they <laughs> allowed it to happen, essentially. Um, so you have that at the same time, and I go back to my idea that the church has inserted itself in such a way that it has made possible the entire hier hierarchical predation 
on Mother Nature and on our species and on us. Um, those two things set the context for one of the things that the psychedelic uh, studies are showing, which is that these drugs help very much with relieving existential depression. Okay, well, where does the existential depression come from? Come from, and I'm suggesting it is the FDA, it is the government, it is the church, it is all these status quo hierarchies that keep the structures in place which make us depressed existentially, which stop us from being able to express ourselves in a way that feels meaningful in relationship to God and to Mother Nature. They all are the things that get in the way. So handing them over the authority to continue to stay in the way and mediate what may or may not be a way that I or you or anybody else might be able to access God is problematic. So I, I don't know how this gets solved, even with the metaphysical impetus of uh, applying the Constitution to the situation, because right now the Constitution seems perilously in the hands of people who are very invested in keeping the hierarchy in place. So I think we're very much at a, at a critical juncture. And, and I love the scholarship that you put forth because it makes, at least for me, it makes these questions crystal clear and we can't run away from them anymore or we're just gonna end up, you said this uh, a little while ago, Jesus was saying, hey, you know, the mysteries, don't let them be domesticated. And when I think of domesticated, I think of domesticated servants. I think of slavery and in a sense, mm -hmm. we are slaves to the system. And if we continue to let others have the mediative authority between us and that which may or may not deliver, because I want to make it clear, not everyone reports having these mystical experiences when they use these drugs. We do, in a sense, seal our fate as being slaves to the system. And I think more thinking out loud like you and I are doing and more scholarship such as yours helps make it possible that we say, uh, we've had enough of that. Thanks. It's interesting. Um, I'll, I'll just I'll riff very quickly on, on slavery. Uh, you, you're making me think about a recent opinion that was penned by Cornell West. Um, you know, not too far from us here, Howard University recently made the decision to disband its classics department. So this, you know, this conversation we're having is somewhat relevant. I mean, does any of this matter? Questions like, are we Greek? Are we Christian? Um, you know, what was religion like 2000 years ago? What was the birth of all this for? What did, I, what, what did the founding fathers have in mind? Um, for generations, people have looked to the classics and Cornell wrote a very impassioned defense of the classics from the black perspective. And he talked about Frederick Douglass um, studying Socrates and Cato and Cicero. He talked about Dr. Martin Luther King, like I mentioned, um, who in his 1963 letter from Birmingham jail quotes Socrates three times. Um, the classics belong to all of us. And, and, you know, when we're talking about these systems of power, whether it's the church, whether it's, whether it's government, whether it's the, you know, different agencies of government, whether it's the Supreme Court, how we fit in all this. I mean, this, this, this moving experiment in democracy and Western civilization that our founders set up, um, you know, a couple hundred years ago and a couple thousand years ago, it's, it's still evolving. And the one thing I always come back to, and the one thing I hope from my book is this interest in antiquity and classics and where we come from, you know, um, it's, 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 it's really in peril. I mean, the classics are in peril. These questions, this conversation is in peril when you're disbanding classics departments. Um, Cornell West says that it's a sign of spiritual decay, moral decline, and deep intellectual narrowness. 
um, not to know your Latin and Greek, not to know the origins of the church, not to know the same questions all you, that, that you're asking, by the way. Uh, we've been struggling with these questions for a couple thousand years, and we can look to antiquity to see how they resolve certain things. Um, and we can make informed decisions for ourselves. Without that perspective, I feel like we're lost. And, and, and I feel like these, these institutions aren't there to serve us. Um, you know, so I'm a proponent of education and classics specifically. Well, I, I think that was actually one of the things I was going to ask you in terms of, well, what's next? But it has definitely served the hierarchy. And I mean, you know, when I say the hierarchy, in a way, I'm saying that it's faceless and yet it's not faceless. And it has become um, far too cliched to talk about white supremacy. And that's actually not something I've ever really talked about because I didn't think that it was the, you know, it wasn't the final rung on the ladder that really mattered. And that is just hierarchy, the idea that we can think linearly and that's going to not kill us, you know, because it does, because thinking linearly ultimately means you have a top and a bottom. And as Praetext has told us, that will destroy the earth. And so we have seen this, but white supremacy, it, it's a, you know, you bring it up and it becomes a conflagration anymore, but it's a thing. It really is a thing. It is part of the structure that keeps everything from moving forward. And when I talk, when you say we need the classics in order to understand who we are and to and to fully participate in e pluribus unum, this is what my take as it is, you can't understand how an individual can be served by a greater whole unless you really understand where democracy came from and what the thinking was in that. And as you point out many times in your book, you need to really understand the actual language in which these things were were committed and 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 uh, and tried out, and you know the experiments that happened around the language and the different words that were used, and so the expectations being set up using those particular words. But this idea that that would actually free people and make people truly invested in their democracy mm -hmm. and citizens, not consumers. That's why I think that changing our our education system to be more classics oriented. That's going to be a huge ask because it doesn't serve the hierarchy. It doesn't serve white supremacy. It doesn't serve the idea that the power belongs in the hands of a few. And as we have seen over and over again, that is now corporations. That is that is the idea of the people who are up on the hill right now who are scrambling around trying to continue to stay in power. And they all look pretty much the same. And they don't look like me. Okay. And, and, but I'm married to a white man, right? And I come from white people. So... It, Again, it's that complexity and it is the the Greeks and the classics and the idea that you can have silly myths and romping gods and science and the mysteries all at once that makes it possible to deal with the complexity of, well, I'm a white person, so why wouldn't I want to continue to have the hierarchy? Well, because hierarchy is killing me. It's killing all of us. And you have to have the adult perspective you can only get by having the rigor of a classics education. So. I'm with you. I don't know where that's gonna where that's gonna go. You're asking people who have a lot to lose, and I guess that really begets the bigger question, which is, why is power so important? Why is power over so important when ultimately it always ends in death? It is a death cult in a sense, the true death cult. Hierarchy is killing the planet, and if we kill the planet, what's the point of having been in power? So I don't even understand that. And then I, in a way, I guess that's a rhetorical question, but. You know, what is the point of having power over someone? And maybe a more developed mind through having had a classics education would be able to address that kind of a, of a question. It's funny, you, you, 
the way you pose these questions is interesting for me because <laughs> it all seems like life or death. Um, and in a way, in a, in a way, it really is. It's the, it's the, it's the, the lifeblood of our democracy. It's how we organize ourselves as a society. It's the future of religion. It's the future of medicine. Um, you know, the, these are questions we've been struggling with um, since time immemorial. And so I, I try and, and talk and, and write about this as much as possible. So yeah, we're, we're developing um, a series. Um, uh, it's a work in progress. Uh, I am working on a second book. Um, uh, having lots of great chats with, with different faculty at different universities, you know, kind of picking up this, this adventure into, into the classics um, and making it something that's not only academically respectable, but that could actually capture the attention of, of people without PhDs, I think is very important. Um, you know, I, I agree 100% with Cornell West when he calls it as a spiritual catastrophe that we're living through uh, and the need to... Um, you know, restore true education, the way it was practiced by the founding fathers, most of whom knew Latin and Greek, by the way. Um, it was the only thing you could study at university for a long time, I mentioned in the book. And so this concept of soul forming education, I think is a huge part of, of where we go in the future. Um, and so, you know, a lot of my work is kind of dedicated to that and just, you know, making sure that people are aware of all the questions that you're asking, we've been asking for a long time. And, you know, there aren't answers in antiquity, but there, there's a roadmap. Um, and, and there's a path for how to address this. Well, if we've been asking these questions over millennia, then I think in the world's uh, most intentional democracy, we're not the largest one, India is the largest democracy, I believe, um, then these questions belong on Capitol Hill and they're <clears throat> not being vetted on Capitol Hill. Hmm. We live in Washington, uh, but where are the rest of the people who should be doing the heavy lifting with us? I don't see them doing this and I don't know how to go about making them pay attention to it. So I don't think they're going to be the ones to do it. I think it is my audience. It's the people you're appealing to with your next book. I mean, this book that you, that we're talking about today, the immortality key, uh, it was a New York times bestseller, correct? Yes, it was. So congratulations on that. This is, this is, it's you and me and the people that you're talking to and the people who listen to this and the people who will, you know, tell somebody, that was a crazy conversation. Don't discount the power you listeners have because it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen with those clowns up on the hill right now. It's just not. And as a former reporter, cap, a policy reporter, I can tell you there's a lot of goodness in the hearts of a lot of the people there. But when you get entangled in that mosh pit, it's just about survival. And also your survival becomes so much more in your face than what you went there to do. You actually don't spend a lot of time getting to know what the issues actually are and the depth that you need to actually uh, legislate around them. And that's, a, that's another failing of our education is that we have people up on the Hill that I used to discuss policy with. And I'd think, well, this is scary. I know more about this than they do. And, but that was the truth. And that wasn't because I was some genius. It was because I had the time to dedicate to it. And they didn't because they were just trying to survive by raising money and fending off the other guy. I cannot thank you enough. I hope to speak with you again. I hope I'll take you up on that uh, that opportunity to meet in person. Maybe we'll go down to the pizza shop. Down sure the thing. Sure thing. <laughs> I'm glad to have been a part of it, Whitney. Yeah. Um, yeah, I really am grateful. This is a great book. Congratulations. And I, I wish you success, all the successes that you've already had and more as you go forward with this work. Oh, cool. Same, same to you. Thank you.
You've been listening to Documental. I'm your host and producer, Whitney Fishburne, in Washington. For more podcasts like this one, visit documental.substack.com. That's documental, all one word, .substack.com. Thanks for listening.